Oh, hi, everybody. Hi, it is the 30th of uh, December 2021, and my name is Luke Thomas, and this is episode 99 of my live chat. I appreciate you being here. How are you? The, the, the One more day after today. Tomorrow is the last day of the year. Can you... Jesus, where did the year go? I mean, sometimes it's felt like painfully slow, and most of the time it feels like it's just been a blur. But <clears throat> but here we are, last live chat of the year. If you are watching on the YouTubes, please give the video a thumbs up, hit subscribe. Today we'll get to whatever you guys filled up um, in the community thread, which I always post on Wednesday nights or afternoons. You guys fill it up, and then we answer them on Thursdays right here at youtube.com slash Luke Thomas. Um, without further ado, let's get the party started because we got a bunch, not a bunch, but we got a couple of announcements worth paying attention to, and then we'll get to all of your questions. All right, so without further ado, let's go. And we're back. Okay. So I bought this. I got the Monster Energy Ultra Fiesta Mango. Is there something known as Party Mango? Does this make me like a... <laughs> am I like a... Am I a influencer now? Because I'm drinking Monster? There, There's no sponsorship. I'm just trying out all the different energy drinks to see which ones I like the most. Ooh. I mean, that's horrible, right? That's horrible, but it does have a lot of caffeine. All right, a couple of announcements. So this is the last uh, live chat of the year. What about next year? Now, this was a strange year for this channel because for the, I think, if not half, maybe even the majority of the year... It sat dormant. It was not active. You were not here. I was not here. No one was here. It was uh, empty, but we decided to at least get the ball rolling. I'm not satisfied with where, where the channel is now, but I am at least satisfied that we're back in rotation. There have been a lot of changes I have sort of telegraphed and anticipated and whatnot, and most of them are not in motion yet because I didn't really understand exactly what my channel needed to not just be back operating, but, you know, to be of value to the average person who might subscribe. And it just seems to me, I'm not entirely sure about this, but it just seems to me, and I've had some talks with some friends about it, they, they seem to think that this is the right thinking, so I'm going to share it with you. I think I have to get out of my house. Um, I think I need to get a separate recording space outside of here. The, the great part about where I'm at right now, you guys can't see it, but on the other side of this camera is about half of a room, two-thirds of a room that used to be my bedroom. That uh, is no longer my bedroom, obviously, but um, it is everything I have is set up on wheels, except for the desk that I have. Um, everything else is on wheels. The TV's on wheels. The camera's the mount. The the tripod is on wheels. The lectern is on. Everything's on wheels, so that I can move it around in a tiny space. Right? You might be like, how do you record in that space? The answer is I have everything on wheels so that when I'm not using it for that particular thing, I just push everything up against the wall and then I have tapes, tape measures on, and then tape marks on the floor and then I bring everything back to where it's supposed to go, right? So that's the way it's done. And it's not super laborious, but when you add in that plus all the other things I have to do and then you, you guys see how many technical errors get made along the way, 
the problem ends up being I have this like accordion life where I have to set everything up from scratch and then tear everything down and then set everything up and tear everything down. It can be done when I've got a little bit more time to devote to it, but as it stands, it is a it is a backbreaker. On top of that, getting another person in the studio with me outside of my house means they can go there anytime they want. They can shoot, they can edit, they can just pull things off of my plate that uh, I currently have to do. So having a, I was really influenced by the schmo seeing his place in Las Vegas. He's got his, he's got, he's got this entire rental property that he got for a fucking steal. I mean, it's still got a little bit of a cost to it, obviously, but for what he gets for the the price, I was like, wow, dude, you are killing it out here. And um, you know, he just leaves parts of his studio untouched. So then when they have a guest come through, they just flick the lights on, turn the cameras on, double check. They have a producer who comes in with them. And then they're off and running. I, I, it's just it, everything is turnkey. I don't have turnkey at all. I need someone who not only can have a, uh, a situation where everything is set up in advance, um, but that it's left that way. It is almost always that way. And that someone else can pick up all of, not all, but many of the other duties that go along with it so that I can come in there, record, and leave. Or, you know, something along those lines over time that's the goal I can't do that here having someone be able to go to a separate space without me to help me um is ba- I, I don't know how to get to where I want to go without that candidly I don't I don't know how we advance so my hope is first quarter of next year maybe even as early as February I want to be in um a different space for these I want to have a little bit of um office space which you can imagine it's not cheap necessarily here but there is so much of it that is not being used that actually the prices, if you look around, they're not too bad. Um, so we're going to do that. I'm going to give that a try. I'm going to see if that works. You know, it's funny. Two of the places that have uh, available office space are in two buildings that I quit jobs to go full-time in MMA. <laughs> so it might be fun going back and being like, oh, I remember when I was just a, you know, I was working on this floor. Uh, as a way just to get to where I'm at today. Now I'm back full circle, except situations changed a little bit. That might be a little bit fun. We'll see. We'll see how things go. So that's the big one I'm going to do. And then, yeah, the other part is I got another guy who's helping me, um, who, uh, you know, in some smaller capacities right now. But but the goal is to get a bit of a team behind me working um, to make the channel go where I want it to go um, and where, I, frankly, I think it needs to go and where it can go. So that's the plan. That's the plan. I'm going to get out of here, I think. I'm going to keep this desk here. I'm going to keep this stuff here probably um, just to have a setup at home as well so that I can do MK or even broadcasting for post shows or whatever. But I am going to get my own separate recording space out in town. It'll be small. You know, it'll be a, I can't afford anything more than an, uh, uh, an office for two people, but um, should be enough. Should be enough. So we'll see how that goes. All right. Mm. You guys have also asked, what about the uploads to the to the um, podcast? Yeah, I, I, I don't have an excuse for you, but pretty confident today will go up. Okay, with that out of the way. Okay, first question. The commentary team has faced a lot of criticism this year. These critics include Dominic Cruz, Sean O'Malley, and MMA reporters. How much responsibility does UFC have for the criticism that the commentary team is facing? Well, I mean, they hire and select them, if that's what you mean. They have released broadcasters like Jimmy Smith and Todd Grisham in exchange for fighters who may have 
personality, but don't have as much experience as professional broadcasters. All right, so there's a few things working here that they're all not related, or at least somewhat related. Working backwards, um, I think Todd Grisham's a phenomenal commentator. DAZN lucked out with him. Uh, I've worked with him a little bit through CBS Sports. Obviously, he's done great work with Glory. I guess his tryout didn't work with UFC. They didn't like him for whatever reason. That's just the way the industry goes. But, um, you know, he had his shot. It didn't work, and he's got other projects. Jimmy Smith they hired away and then let go because he had no history in the organization, which I just find to be... It's their, it's, it's their broadcast. It's their company. It's their ethos. It doesn't matter what I think, but I'm just like, dude, why would you get rid of a prodigious talent like that? WWE, dude, Jimmy Smith is so good that Jimmy Smith didn't even really watch all that much pro wrestling before getting into that as a commentator and has already thrived. It's like, <laughs> you know, why did you let him go? Like, on what planet does that make sense? Okay, you know, they have their own ways. That's a separate situation from what Dominic Cruz has said, which is that DC doesn't do enough prep. He probably th thinks that DC might not be the only one. Sean O'Malley's criticisms, I'm not too sure, and MMA reporters, right? But MMA reporters have a lot of different criticisms. These are all not the same thing. Some don't like Daniel Cormier. Some find him to be too chummy. Some love Daniel Cormier. Some love the fact that he's very chummy. Some don't like Dominic Cruz. They find him too dry. Some love him. Some don't like the fact that the UFC broadcast has basically always been a place where they kind of whitewash things and... You know, they, they don't allude to beefs they've started with their own fighters and then they, you know, gloss over other things in the interest of protecting the UFC brand. But that's always been that way. It's always been what, I mean, that's not new. These are not the first guys. I mean, you could be mad at it. So I'm not talking anyone out of of not of liking that. If you don't like that, that's fine, but it's it's hardly new. These are not the architects of this, these, these current um, reporter or these current commentators. So, I mean, I think here's a couple of the problems that might unite some of this a little bit. I mean, these are broad strokes. But one is that someone is making, per like, it's interesting, someone is making personnel decisions that I think are quite good and then also quite limited. Like, the fact that it's been, you know, somewhat pulling teeth to get Laura Senko a more prominent role seems idiotic. I mean, I, I grant that the person who is has enough foresight to put her in the position she's in now clearly understands something more than most folks. Fair enough. Um, but I don't quite get that. So that's a weird one. But the basic gist is that the UFC has a particular ethos. They have a particular look and a sound that they like. They like high energy. They like positive enthusiasm. And these are things that a lot of people in the industry like, of course. But they like... The brand being very well protected. They don't like a focus on anything, any kind of storyline that gets between the brand and the promoter, which you'll note if you watch boxing broadcasts, particularly the HBO boxing broadcast back in the day with Lampley and Kellerman and, and uh, Roy Jones Jr., they would often talk about the storyline being the promoter versus the fighter or the you know, last fight on the contract, but like in a very, you know, relatively speaking, full-throated way. Um, you know, with the UFC... I just feel like they're going to get themselves, they're going to pull a lot of criticism by virtue of the way in which they've got, you know, I mean, it's just very weird that like the, you know, Dana White and UFC brass are very much like, you know, we don't tell people what to do. This is very much like, you know, we want, we want free speech in society and freedom and all this shit. And it's like the minute anyone, either a reporter or a fighter starts talking about the financials, they lose their shit. So, you know, that's a bit of a tangent, but I'm just trying to point out that like, 
what you're sort of citing here are a series of disparate problems, somewhat united by the fact that the UFC exerts a ton of control in a lot of creative and production directions. And so you can feel their weight a little bit, although, you know, the decision to not fully hire Grisham or pass on Smith, these are tangentially but somewhat related to some of the other things you, you have pointed out. I would just say that, like, I think the UFC generally has a very good product, and I think in general they have a very good production product, right? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you rate what they're able to deliver in that space? They're, they're very, very good at it. I mean, it should be noted. But it's a little North Korea up in there, which I think causes problems. Um, and they have a certain kind of sensibility about goofiness and fun that I personally don't share and that you'll get a lot of different positive and negative response to. Would you agree with me that Stipe somehow started his career a, a tad bit late, so his physical prime and experience never truly reached the highest point? I mean, sure. I mean, the idea would be for someone in the future to have started some kind of combative sport application or even a couple of them at age seven or eight or nine, single digits, and then you build it up through that. I mean, he didn't get to half of that until much, much later. Uh, not sure if you've discussed already. I was wondering what you thought about Habib's statements on peaks in MMA. Essentially stating that once someone has reached the top of their skill level and been beaten by the new contender, they cannot return back on top again. Interesting to hear your take since Aldo's recent run of form. I mean, these are... Listen, Habib understands MMA in ways I never will. We'll see what kind of promoter he turns out to be. And I think that there is a certain um, candor that is almost seen as brutal that he employs. And that can be... There are some problems with it, but you know there is a certain... It's simplistic in ways that I think hurt it, but it's also sort of simplistic in ways that kind of honor the the way in which you sort of see things play out. I mean, in general, what he's describing is more or less going to be true. Dude, getting to the top of any UFC weight class, especially on the men's side, but even the women's side too, it's going to be extremely difficult. Once Just getting there, which is why you see like a lot of very well-respected fighters, let's say like Rashad Evans, I mean, he wasn't able to defend the title. Dude, Francis's first title defense is going to be against Cyril Ghosn. He, he may not win that one. So, like, just getting there is exceedingly difficult. Holding that position for any length of time, four years, two years, six months, whatever it ends up being. Obviously, when you get to, like, the several-year mark, that's when things start changing a little bit. Uh, sorry, I got a guy doing repair over here. I want to see if he was texting me. The point I'm trying to make here is to answer your question um, about peaks at MMA. You know, there is a certain amount of what Habib was saying that is quite true. Like just getting there is hard, holding that is hard, and then once you lose it, it is very, very rare that you see someone get it back. I mean, for example, this is you know small sample size possible. I'm going to bring up almost anecdotal evidence, but it is it's emblematic of what he's kind of describing, where Co Cody goes from Cody Garbrandt goes from unranked to champion within a four fight span but then loses it and can't really ever seem to get right. His situation has a series of very specific things related to him, but all of these situations have a series of specific things related to them, and yet you can, you consistently see a pattern like that emerge. You know, most people don't 
don't have uh, a period where they sort of trade with a contemporary up and down or, you know, for long stretches of time or whatnot. But there are some counterexamples to this. I mean, Couture and Liddell would be uh, a pretty strong one, right? Um, Couture, the first time he goes up against Liddell, uh, he spanked him. He beat him clean, uh, controlled him. And then the second time they fought, so now Couture, you know, uh, was he still a champion at this point? Because he had lost it. No, late. I was later. Um, you know, the tables had turned, and he couldn't quite get quit, get back on top because Chuck Liddell was able to get back on top. So my point being is, Chuck Liddell, I think, was champion. Was he champion when Couture took it off of him? Let's double check that. I can I can hardly recall anymore. Um, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. So for old Chucky Chuck. When he beat Chuck the first time, damn, I forget he fucking TK or KO'd Alistair. Oh, no, I didn't forget that. I'm looking at the wrong resume. Hold on. So he lost to Couture for the interim UFC Light Heavyweight Championship back at UFC 43. Then he rematched him at UFC 52, slept him, and then did it again at uh, UFC 57, right back to back when he defended the title. But the point being is, like, you know, here he was with a rival where he got... I mean, the first fight is not very close. Neither the second or the third one. But you get the idea where you can get situations where contemporaries, um, you know, can rise and fall. This is not the... Yeah, maybe not the best example. But even the fact that you have someone like Couture who was a multiple-time champion in each weight class. Um, let's go to Couture here for just a second. So he grabs the title. The heavyweight championship. <clears throat> This is a different era, too. But in 97, won it again in... Vacated it. Won it again against Kevin Randleman in 2000. So that's three years later. Then he won the heavyweight championship again uh, in 2007. So within a 10-year span, he was able to go back on top. So it does happen. It can happen. It certainly is possible. However... I think the point to note is that, in general, once you see someone who has been at the top look good for a little while, get kind of housed, can they get back on top? If they're very, very special, yes. But short of that, probably not. What could you see becoming a big trend in MMA in 2022? Looking at hand fighting, I feel like many elite fighters, Volkanovski, Jan, Gan, Adesanya, Jones, use it much more frequently and purposefully than their opponents. I could see this becoming the new calf kick, something that's been around forever but suddenly becomes a focal point. I don't think there's any denying that you're going to see that. And by the way, I wouldn't call it hand fighting exactly. Hand fighting can be a little bit different. I mean, it is hand fighting. I mean, it's not saying you're wrong, but typically hand fighting when it's described is usually a little bit more, not always, Usually a little bit more of a grappling context thing where someone has like the back and your hand fighting or, you know, um, if you're sometimes you can hear it in wrestling where you can peel a hand off of a collar tie, something like that. Um, you hear you see it in, in, in striking sports, too. I don't want to say that you don't, but uh, a better term is actually one that um, uh, Barry Robinson uses that I've borrowed that I think is pretty good glove control. Is there a better way to think about that? Um, because what they're often doing is they're, it's by the way, a lot of the principles are the same it's the high hand that wins kind of a thing but um 
Yeah, you're going to see a lot of that. These guys will control rear. We've, we've seen it with Volkanovski. He loves to get opposite stance, control the lead side hand, and then he knows what's coming essentially otherwise. Either get out of the way of it, get in front of it, but then use the fact that you've eliminated nearly 50% of the fighting conditions that this person can operate under. But just by controlling the hand, you could do a lot with that. You can, You guys can see what he does with it. It is extremely potent. You're going to see more glove control. For sure, for sure. I said it on an MK yesterday, and I really kind of stand by it. You're seeing this. Adrian Yanez is not a aberration of any kind in MMA. There's not many people who do what he does or as well as what he does. He is certainly quite gifted. But what I mean to say is you're these guys who sit in the boxing pocket a lot and have a boxing-centered game that they build pieces off of through their boxing. Max Holloway is another type. You know, They take a bit more damage than I think they should, that I think will shorten their career over time, but they land a lot. It puts them in a winning position a lot, depending on their particular kind of sensibility, if they're high volume in particular. You're going to see a lot more of that too, but I think you're right. Glove control, absolutely. Hand fighting, of course, is a fine term. I don't know why I said otherwise, but it, you know, usually when I think of hand fighting, I think of a grappling context, but any term you want to use there for controlling of the hands, controlling of the wrist a lot as well. It's not just the hands. Um, and by the way, some of them can be like parries. Sometimes you can grab it because it's an MMA glove, but you can smack it down as well. So there's just a lot you can do about lead hands, hands being stuck out with your own. And um, you're seeing the better ones really make a run with it. Habib was 24 years old when he beat a prime RDA. At that time, Pettis was the champion. How many title defenses do you think he would have had before he was defeated or retired? Well, assume that was for the title. Oh, my kid's awake. I can't go with her. Um, she woke up from a nap. She's all bitter. <laughs> and she's specifically calling for me. Okay, I have to do it. I have to do it. I have to do it. This, see, this is why I need my own space. Come here. Come here. Come here. Come here. Y'all hear that? Come here. Come here. Come here. Oh, hey, what you crying for? Hey, what you crying for? What you crying for? What you crying for, huh? What's so bad? Because you had to take a nap? Huh? What's up? What can I do for you? What's up? Did you... What's wrong? What's wrong? Sorry, everyone. I have to. Otherwise, it'll be like this for hours. What's wrong? What's wrong? Huh? Yes, that's me. You want to say hi to everybody? You want to say hi? No? You're not ready to say hi yet? Um, the answer is as long as he wanted up until, oh, how would he have had before he was defeated or retired? I mean, if he had stayed with the same time length or time span, right? Whatever the dates were that he competed from beginning to end. And then you sub out him as champion at the same time that Pettis is, which I know is not exactly what you're asking, but it would have been something similar, I think. Uh, maybe that's not exactly what you're saying. I'm just pointing out, if he had been champion at that time, his record obviously would not have changed. Um, 
I think he could have gone for quite some time. I would say several more years. Assuming he could stay injury-free. Several more years. But whether he would tie Demetrius Johnson or, you know, Silva's record or whoever's record at this point, whoever's got it, you know, I don't know about that. Are you feeling better? Yeah, you want to say hi now? That's a penny. Penny. Yeah, a penny. Okay. Me more? Daddy has to work. Let me finish this, and then I'll take you to the park, okay? Okay. All right. I love you, okay? Okay. Go with Lore. Okay. Te amo mucho. Okay. I'll see you soon, okay? Okay. Te amo. Just like that. Magic, bro. Also, she's already spent two hours at the park, but, you know, she loves the park. All right. Uh, this person writes, no question, just to thank you for all the hard work you've done for this year. Well, thank you. I don't like reading those, but uh, I appreciate the messages. Uh, congrats on the recent weight loss. Yeah, almost on 40. Almost at 40. I'm down. Can you believe that? What's your advice to someone who's trying to stay consistent with training slash dieting or to stay consistent with long-term goals in general? Um, I honestly, I mean, you know, listen, I'm not, I, I've hardly got this all figured out. I mean, I'm not some kind of, <laughs> you know, I let myself go. So yes, I've lost weight, but I'm hardly the authority on any of these kinds of things. The only thing I can say for long-term goals is one, you have to have a clear sense about what it is, like whether it's a weight goal or a financial goal or whatever the, whatever, the, whatever you're envisioning may be, you need to have an understanding of what that is, what it looks like. And I've said this before, the way in which most things are accomplished for most people, some people get shot out of a rocket, some people have extraordinary abilities, some people are incredibly lucky, some get all of those things, but for the vast majority of us, that's not really the way life's going to work. The way I've seen it work for myself and others is if you have a long-term goal or something you're trying to get to, what you need to not worry about is, geez, that seems so far away, I'll never get there. You've got to not think of it that way. You have to think of it as a series of daily or even hourly small victories, and it's the accumulation of the very small ones that add up to something significant. Moreover, if you are trying to lose weight and you are trying to go to the gym or whatever else you're trying to do, if, it, if that's really the goal, again, it's not financial or some other professional or personal goal, um, you need to also understand that, like, dude, if you're constantly in a sacrifice mode, it, you, you, you're, understand something about your willpower. It is valuable, it is helpful, and in extreme cases, it can be extreme, you know, very powerful. Um, and for you, it is powerful. For me, it is powerful, but it is only powerful in short bursts. Like when you really need it in right in a right moment. Not for like, gosh, I still have six weeks left in my mesocycle of training. I just don't feel like it anymore. That's it, Willpower won't really help you a whole lot if that's what you're up against. And so what you need to realize is, um, you need something you can do at scale. What is something that is challenging enough to produce results, but not so challenging that it keeps you away from doing it day over day over day over day? Because if you can get small accumulated victories, whatever they may be, day over day over day over day over day, that will add up very quickly in ways that you had never imagined. And then you begin to be like, oh, right, this goal I had in mind seems so far away. And, you know, I'm not there yet, but I see... Now that I've made some progress, you could begin to see how everything works together. Um, again, I, I'm not some expert on any of these particular areas. Uh, I'm not some expert on um, 
how success is in any way achieved. I've got a little bit I can speak for. I've seen it a little bit in the real world. I can only share with you what I have witnessed. But a big mistake a lot of people make is their right to have goals, their right to have dreams, and their right to use motivation to get them there. But just motivation and just having a dream is just deeply insufficient. You cannot willpower your way to most goals, even if they're achievable. You need a plan and you need consistent habits. And it needs to fold into your life in a way where, you know, listen, some periods should be more challenging than others and will require more discipline and a little bit more willpower. But that willpower is just a little bit of the polish at the end. What about all the other work? That has to be woven into the fabric of your life. And the more it feels, you know, like draining and difficult. It's like these people who go to the gym all the time and do nothing but like super high intensity workout. Again, dude, for your CrossFit donks or your guys who are, you know, A plus athletes, I mean, do what you want to do with your life. But Sally, the, you know, the paralegal, it's like, dude, you're not going to last at the gym <laughs> if every time you go, it's a nine and a half, 10 level of intensity. You won't, you just will not last. You will not last. It will not work. That's why sometimes when you go to jiu-jitsu, you need fucking tough days where you're crawling out there on your hands and knees. But they can't all be that way. Sometimes you need an easy day where it didn't feel so bad and you just drilled and, you know, uh, you have to have the range of experiences. So um, my, 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 my best advice I can possibly give is pick a goal, uh, make it concrete, look at it in your mind. Think of a plan of action to get there, and whatever that may be should be folded into something into the daily course of your life, small wins, tiny sacrifices that accumulate over to something significant in the end. Question about Francis. If his using leaving the UFC as a threat but wins the fight with Gon, wouldn't it be a void threat if his contract being extended another fight? Uh, I mean, sore, yes and no, because it's possible that he could be extended in a way where he would have to squeeze in another, but, um, no, not necessarily, not necessarily. Do you think Colby should pivot himself into a celebrity fighter and would be bigger star to be one? And this is why he's looking for a fight with guys like Masvidal and Dustin. I can imagine he may not want to go back at the back of the line and fight contender after contender, and the only way to maximize his personal income is to fight guys like that. I don't know what you mean, a celebrity fighter. Like, just give up on the idea that you can be champion? I mean, he's fought Kamaru 10 rounds. He's been dropped three times, but he's been pretty close even considering that. I, most fighters that you can name that are celebrities, there are exceptions, but most you can name, are either champions or champion proximity. Even guys like Derek Lewis. Derek Lewis was champion proximity. He fought in a title fight. You know, he's one of the top fighters in the world. Like he's champion proximity. Those are the only ones you know, by and large. Those are the only ones that have a real following. So, you know, pivoting away from that while he's under UFC contract, especially if he's good enough to win a title, I don't see that as an especially smart idea. What was your favorite part of 2021, both professionally and, and not professionally? Okay, professionally. Had to be that desk they built us. I said this yesterday. Dude, CBS. So you guys don't understand this. I've covered an event for CBS Sports twice. Once was that second Connor. Um, was it the third? No, it was the third Connor-Dustin fight. 
I went for CBS Sports Center. Most of the time when you see me and BC on the road, we're there for Showtime. So like Showtime handles the travel. It's for Showtime work. When CBS Sports sends us, it's not really for any of that. But they built us a desk in that July show, and that was just so fucking fun with the with the guys and the gals who showed up and were just happy to be there. And like I said on MK yesterday, we didn't even broadcast that to the house, you know. Like there's so much more we can do with that. That was a fucking blast. And my cat had just died, and it was a terrible moment. And um, you know that was that was really rewarding. That was really rewarding. Not professionally, I have to tell you, with my daughter. I mean, maybe you guys are different than me. Um, I'm certain that you are, but I mean it in this way. I didn't realize how many layers go into personhood, right? Like what makes a person a person? Many things, right? I mean, autonomy in modern society, the ability to speak language, um, to understand nuances, things like humor and anger and frustration and sadness and delight, right? I mean, and, and um, sort of situational, contextual awareness, um, you know, um, levels of cognition that get developed. You don't realize how many little tiny layers there are to that. And I have watched my daughter in the last year. So she's gone from about a year and a half to now two and a half years old. And in that, she's been not only just much more ambulatory, which is uh, its own challenge, but dude, when you watch the layers of cognitive material and ability slowly build on each other as she develops them, because you know, remember, she's starting from scratch. She doesn't have these things. So when she begins to use them, you see the order in which her body begins to to develop these skills and then employ them and it's just remarkable it's absolutely remarkable i've told my i told the story before i think my daughter went up to my wife she doesn't really speak english to my wife she only speaks spanish to my wife and my wife only speaks spanish to her and uh so she went up to my wife and asked for um a a bottle in with milk in spanish and my wife was you know working on a phone or whatever and so she just turned around and asked me in English. And we had never told her. We had never fully explained at that time that there was something different between English and Spanish. She just sort of intuited that that was the case. And then, you know, the next time her grandmother called, she answered the phone and goes, hola, como estas? You know, and I'm like, I didn't teach her that. And I asked my wife, did you teach her specifically that phrase? No, she just picked up like these little ways of like introducing herself to the world. It's just incredible, man. It's incredible to watch them noodle this. And even yesterday we got to the balance bike and the first like day on it was terrible. By the next day, dude, you know, and every human has this capacity for, for obviously, um, you know, incremental and, and sometimes immediate improvement, but, but watching her brain slowly come together to produce, you know, more and more fascinating, difficult, complex tasks. And then to watch her personality get equally varied and dynamic. It's, it's man, it, you know, it's so funny, dude, when you have kids, and dude, kids are not for everybody. Like, I, I, this is not like, everyone should have kids. It's not what I'm saying. What I will say is, the people who have kids have not done a great job of explaining to you why having kids is great. They've done a very good job of explaining to you why having kids can be challenging, right? The cost, financially, the amount of time you have, 
do you lose yourself in the process and everything and all your Friday nights gone and blah, blah, blah. Everyone explains all of the bad parts. They don't tell you the rewarding parts. The rewarding part is that developing a relationship with a child like that is deeply rewarding and illuminating to me and fascinating and fun. And it's like, dude, it was like, why would you want to have kids? It's a blast. <laughs> it's a blast. Like, would I rather, you know, or, I shouldn't say rather. Would I also like to have enough free time to go do a bunch of other shit? Yes, of course. Everything in life comes with trade-offs. But what they don't tell you is, like, why do people have kids and have families? Many, many reasons. Complex, social, religious, you name it. But another one is that having families are fun. That sounds like, I, I don't hear that argument made a lot to people, but it's like, it's my experience. And don't get me wrong, dude. I had a sleepless night last night. Like these, I mean, look how fucking gray I am. These are not. <laughs> these are not easy things to do, but uh, rewarding. Yes, they. No one ever tells you, but you know that, that's still, that. That's not an arrangement that everyone is going to want. Not everyone's going to want those kinds of things in their life, and they would rather live it in other ways. And I completely get that. I didn't even know I wanted kids until my wife really told me she was pregnant. To be honest with you, um, you know, I, I kind of did, but I was nervous. I mean, I think most people would say that. And then you have one, and it's scary, and it's difficult. But, dude, it's great. It's great. Um, wanted to say your daughter is absolutely adorable. Thank you. Have you ever thought about including your family more in content? No, not at all. If the UFC want McGregor to fight for a title again so badly, wouldn't it make more sense for them to create a 165-pound division and make the inaugural title fight between him and someone like Diaz or Masvidal? Obviously, it'd still be silly, but it'd be better than letting him jump the line at 155. I'm not sure that it would be. You'd be creating a new set of problems to solve another one. First of all, if he gets a title shot at 155, how many of you Bamas are going to go, oh, well, you know what? UFC's really crossed the line this time. They gave a title shot to someone who has no business competing for it. I'm just not going to give them my dollars anymore. No one's going to do that. So what is the penalty for the UFC to do that? Now, why would they create a 165-pound division to solve a problem that basically doesn't exist? Um, could you predict your champions by each weight class by the end of 2022? I could not. Luke, I've been fascinated by your recent in-depth analysis and wanted to see if you had any advice on what the best way to watch a live modern MMA fight is. There could be so much going on between two fighters that often it's hard to know what one should be paying attention to, especially when it comes to striking. What dictates which detail you pay attention to moment to moment? Thanks for all the great content this year. Here's to a brighter 2022. Yeah, I hope it's a brighter 2022 for all of us. Um, I will say this. Listen, man, I get this question in different forms a fair bit. I'm trying to find the best way to answer it. And I honestly think what I'm about to say is, at least for right now, the best thing I can think of. You should watch an MMA fight in the way that you most enjoy. Honestly. Like, when you ask what's the best way to watch a, a modern MMA fight, I do think it's a good question. But it's a good question that needs a little bit of clarification. When what I, First thing I would ask is, well, for who? 
who are we talking about? Are we talking just to random fans? Are we talking about people who need to do tape study? Are we talking about people who want to learn more? These are not all the same kinds of people. They're going to watch things a little bit differently. Now, I think what you're probably mentioning and talking about here is is fans. What do fans do? What's an, what, what, what should an educated fan do to watch MMA? How, how should they pay attention to it? And again, I'm going to repeat the same thing. In whatever way you get the most enjoyment out of, I want you to think about how you're watching a fight. Are you watching in person or not at all? These are, or I should say, uh, in person or um, on television, because those are going to be two different scenarios that will have very different answers about what kinds of things you're valuing and looking for. If you're talking about at home, watching it on your screen, again, what way do you like to watch it? Keep doing that. Do you have other people? Are you able to hear the commentary? You know, everyone's going to have a way that they like to consume the product. I would recommend you keep doing that. If you want to learn a little bit more, then I think you have to make a couple of choices about how you watch. If you if you really want to learn about what's happening, first, go train. Qualified instructor, qualified gym. Oh, Jesus. Um, give me a second, everyone. Give me a second. I have to hit an intermission here in just a second. Hang on one second. I've got this guy doing construction here, so I, I got repairs I have to do. Give me one minute. Um, first thing I would do if you want to learn a little bit more... You could obviously train. You should read as many things as you can read about footwork and everything else. Whatever, anything that's relevant to increasing your level of understanding. Um, and I would say start to make notes in your mind about what conditions are being established pretty quickly. Um, are they in the center to start? Are they along the fence line? What you should be looking for along the fence line. Um uh, is someone setting a tone that someone else is responding to? Is there a little bit of, um, is there a scenario where, um, uh, you know, one person is sort of setting the tone, another person's following, or is one person trying to press another person geographically speaking inside the cage? Are they following? So what I'm looking for is the story. Like when they first meet up, I'm like, right, where are they? Are they in the center? Are they somewhere else? Why are they? Why are they where they are? Uh, what stance are they in and are they switching it, right? So like, what am I? What conditions am I looking for based on matchup permutations? And then who is, I'll take turns watching each one. Like what are they trying to do? How are they responding to it, vice versa? And then I'll just kind of let the fight take its own flow and I go back and forth and I don't really focus on anything else. So I'm just trying to enjoy it as a fan. But the things that you should be paying attention to are the context clues. Who's leading? Who's following? Where are they? What stance? Um, you know. Uh, that kind of a thing. These are things that in general will help you begin to, you know, everyone's going to be a little bit different, but I think one of the best ways to think about fights if you're trying to understand them better is to pull them apart. What are the component pieces that make this what it is? Well, it's going to be the stance. It's going to be the round, right? The fifth versus the first. It's going to be the real estate inside the octagon. It's going to be the stance and the weapons that they deploy from that stance. It's going to be the setups. It's going to be what executions worked and failed and blah, blah, blah. That's how I pay attention. All right, let me hit a quick intermission. This will be two minutes or less so I can answer this donk's questions. I'll be right, I swear to God, I'll be right back.
See, this is why I'm getting my own space. Because I can't do this anymore. <laughs> All right, let's get back. Practice fight with Bilal. Wonderboy announced that he had just resigned a six-fight contract. Any matchups for you interest him? Fresh ones, I guess. Do you think MMA rounds should start with the fighters in the same position they were at the end of the previous round? No. No, I do not think that. I think they should start the way that they start. I like the idea of rounds. Even if you don't count them as rounds like you do under the one or pride system, I like the notion of there being a five-minute period and then that's it. That's all that there is. So uh, there's, a, there's a sense in fighting among some folks that there's a there's like a there's like a real fight and a real fight would be like well, if you're not intervening and you have all these rules and you don't have any blah 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 that's a real fight but if you actually think about it there is no such thing as a real fight there are just different kinds now they're they're not all the same obviously an amateur is not the same as a pro fight a street fight's not the same as an amateur or a pro fight or a kickboxing fight's not the same as a they use the word for fight in, gra in grappling in Brazil but you get the idea like they're not all not, they're, I'm not saying that they're all equal but they are all part of the same family and so um, the point I'm trying to make here is when you think about you know these these arguments about you know what's a real fight um, it's a phony concept that everyone's trying to live up to That'd be like, well, if you didn't, you know, you didn't have these X or Y obstructions, you would get a more truth-revealing result. But you're not getting a more truthful, revealing result most of the time. Most of the time, what you're getting, I should say, um, if you change the rules to accommodate this idea about, um, you know, uh, accommodating more of a real fight then I think what you end up getting is uh, a, a change in rules that A, doesn't even improve the product, and B, is chasing a ghost that we don't need to. You know, part of what you have is an entertainment product. Like, not every, not every single rule or way in which we construct the sport needs to be about um, authenticating who exactly is the best at all times because even the best rules can't do that. Someone could get lucky... Uh, you win, you know, three times out of ten, or you know, but you won the first time that you guys met, or you get something like that. Like we're just doing our best to create a series of rules and a sport that seems modestly fair-ish. You know, it's got a reasonable amount of constraints, and you just kind of let the let the rest do what it does. But that that, that fresh starting over period creates a lot of drama. It creates a lot of challenge. It makes the, I think it makes the sport much much better and. You know, is that realer than doing it the other way? No, it's not really than, than that either. But it's a better way to do it, certainly a much more entertaining way. Uh, as MMA progresses, well-rounded fighters are becoming more common. Do you think that specialist will eventually become a thing of the past in the sport of MMA? No, I don't. Or will there always be specialists in MMA who are successful at a high level? how many specialists there will be and then what kind of specialists they will be that remains to be seen but that there will be specialists seems to me impossible to not be true um it's true fighters are getting more well-rounded like there's way more black belts now than there ever were 
in my experience. But, you know, you can't make the claim that, like, MMA jiu-jitsu is better or more prominent than it used to be, even though the level of grappling is, at least in terms of what the average fighter has, significantly higher. Um, but the bigger issue is that that well-roundedness will serve a lot of function and it will be very, very valuable. I mean, sort of self-evident, right? If you have a lot of ability in a lot of different areas, just going to be in a sport that has all of these variables, you're accounting for many of them. Uh, but in so doing, you have to make trade-offs about what you train. There are 24 hours in a day, there are seven days in a week, there are 52 weeks in a year, and then that is it. And the year is over. And then you have another year, but you get the idea. Like There's a finite amount of time in which you have to train. You have to make choices about what those are going to be. If a bunch of people rationally choose to be as well-rounded as possible because they feel like that's the best way to put themselves in a position to win. And they might have some strengths here or there and some weaknesses here or there. But, you know, well-roundedness is a thing that they're looking for. Then quite rationally, someone else is going to come along and say, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to be good enough to not have terrible weaknesses everywhere, but I'm going to have one ace in the effing hole like a Habib. As long as well-roundedness is a value that a lot of fighters um, have and a roadmap to technical progress that they employ, you're always going to get somebody doing the exact opposite. Again, will they be predominantly strikers? Will they be predominantly grapplers? Depending on what kind of part of the world produces them, what we discover the rule sets to more or less favor or accommodate. There's, there's a lot of ways it could all play out. But well-roundedness naturally creates situations where you have specialists. And then specialists end up creating situations where you have well They all feed off each other. A bold prediction for the sport in 2022 and one optimistic prediction for yourself personally. Okay, all right. Bold prediction for the sport for 2022. I think we'll see a 2 million pay-per-view buy rate fight next year. I do. I think between some of the options that Nate and Connor have, I think we could do. I think we might see that. Um, one optimistic prediction for yourself personally. Um, hmm. There's a weight I haven't been since I was 23, 24, something like that. And I had a consultation with somebody who's helping me, and they think it's possible. Not 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 merely possible, but um, likely slash inevitable. I hit that weight, provided I just keep doing what I've been doing. How fast is a little hard to say. Probably before my birthday, although we'll see. But certainly within that year. Um, and that sounds crazy to me that I might be able to get there, but actually it doesn't because I had years and years and years of, uh, you know, incrementally slightly worse health management than the last until the, as you guys know the story, the pandemic came around and then everything got fucked. Um, but it, he seems to think mathematically it is quite possible. He seems to think it is quite possible. So I'll share with you that that would be, that would be something. Not just mathematically possible, like, oh, if you, you know, but like quite realistic is the way it was put to me.
Thoughts on No Limit Records being incredibly underrated as a label from the 90s and early 2000s. They dominated rap and my playlist for several years. Yeah, they played Make Em Say Uh at my graduation. So, that doesn't tell you what kind of high school I attended. Dude, they were everywhere um, when I was a kid, or in high school. And I remember they had, you guys may not remember this. Like, obviously when I was in high school, the big thing was to go get CDs at wherever the fuck. Sam Goody or Media Play or, you know, you pick your spot. And um, they had, most of the CDs you would buy would be like this uh, clear plastic that had like these like uh, embossed edges and you would grip it like this and then pull it open. That was the way it was opened. And I remember they always had, not always, but they often, I should say, had these really cool, almost plasticky, colored covers. So, like, I think Silk the Shocker had, like, a like a baby, like, almost like North Carolina blue one. And, um, you know, uh, who was the other one? Was it Mercedes? Was that the other one? Trina? I forget who it was, but... They had like a purple one, or not purple one, they had like a peach one almost, like a flesh-colored one. And like, you know, they, they stood out and, and you know, they were they were like, they were they were like a little Nipsey Hussle-ish. Not in sound, I mean, he was a West Coast guy doing his own thing, but in terms of these like independent kind of signed guys, their own labels just kind of hustling and grinding and doing their own thing. And it was a little low budget, but it had a ton of enthusiasm. The sound was fresh. This was also at the time where in the South generally was ascendant in hip hop where you know Atlanta had obviously produced Outkast at this point and Dungeon Family. And then, you know, you had Texas on the rise with Swisha House and DJ Screw and even before that you had Ghetto Boys out of there and um also out of Louisiana and the New Orleans area, obviously, you know, the whole cash money guys and and uh and no limit. Um uh yeah. They were they they dominated music in the late nineties, early two thousands. And I remember I was like, it didn't make any sense, but it was an example of both Snoop's de- desperation at the time, but also the you know, what it meant that they had um ascended to where they had ascended. I remember when Snoop signed with No Limit, I was like, Wow, dude, are you shitting me? That's unbelievable. Um, but there was an episode of Cribs where Master P was on Cribs and he has this painting of himself and I think one of his kids in it, giant painting, like the size of a wall, huge. And, um, (laughs) if you'll, if you ever go back and see it, he describes the painting as eloquent, right? Not elegant or eloquent, eloquent. So that was always one of my favorites. What's your opinion on of Eagle FC? They seem to be doing some changes to MMA, such as the 165 division. Plus, Habib mentions a change in the system and comparing the change to NBA football F1. What would this change be? I don't know what the change would be, but I can say Eagle FC, I mean, I realize that they have an existence prior to Habib taking them over. I think they were called like Gorilla FC or something. Let's wait and see what they do. Uh, obviously, they're going to have a huge tie-in to Dominance MMA. So it's going to be a lot of Dominance MMA or Dominance MMA um, adjacent <clears throat> fighters. I love the idea of 165. I think it's long overdue. I, I, I have zero problem with it. 
Um, and it would it might take innovators in the space who have, you know, it makes more sense for Eagle FC actually to potentially get behind 165, even with, or I should say, especially with Kevin Lee in their stables, because they they can stand out that way, they can build something that way. It's something unique. It, it, it's a value add in the market. UFC doesn't have the same incentive structures, so it's nice to have somebody who out there as a promoter who can take some risks like that. But let's just see what he does. He might do a great job. He might do a terrible job. Let let's see. Do you believe in pure quote self defense gyms and quote urban survival training among others actually provide? tangible benefits i frankly don't know a whole lot about like the long-term curricula of a lot of these places the reason why is you know a lot of them seem like like with jujitsu you you have no reason to never stop going right you have no reason to never stop going because even if you reach black belt even if you reach black belt world champion you'll get older there's always somebody new you um there's never a point where you could say you know it all. You don't, right? You there's never I, I, those like self defense gyms often seem like the curricula are short, a year, a year and a half, two less than that, six weeks, you know that kind of a thing. Um, that's generalizing. I can only tell you what I've seen. Uh, I would just say that like, you know, listen, there probably is some value to them, but. Understand that a lot of these self-defense scenarios, I'm not sure how trainable they are. Again, any, any kind of real training is going to be better than nothing. But I just wonder about how much actual tactical, reproducible training you have that translates over to real self-defense situations. Um, also, like, dude, who are these people that constantly need like self-defense situations? Like, I get like you know, vulnerable people living in in high crime areas might need it, but you know, is that where these gyms are? These gyms are often in nice parts of like downtown, wherever the fuck. So there's a real question of like, you know, who is the customer for this and what level of knowledge do they have about this product that they're buying that they can make an informed decision about how much value it's providing them. And, you know, are these even the target audiences that would even really benefit from something like this? I guess my point being is there's something to be, something to be said for like a boxing or an MMA gym where you go in there and you just always work on your craft and there's carryover to self-defense situations, especially obviously on the MMA side. Um, but you don't try to get, you know, limited or weird training or certifications that don't, that are hard to know what they mean um, around rare, highly dangerous, in certain cases, non-trainable situations or, you know, for the average person, non-trainable for the average SWAT team, perfectly trainable, right? Um, you know, some training is probably always going to be better than no training, but I would put a very clear limit on, um, exactly what level of self-defense you can get from places like that. So, you know, if that's the only thing you got, probably go train cause you might get some from it, but it's not going to be as good as, um, in my mind as, um, a place that, you know, you're drilling every day, known situations, and the workarounds. And then, by the way, like, John Danaher just had a post about this in jiu-jitsu. There's the, there the gi and then the... Well, actually, there's the gi and no-gi variety of jiu-jitsu. There's the MMA variety, which is closely related to the no-gi, but obviously quite different. And then there's the street self-defense style of jiu-jitsu. And all three work together, but all three can be distinct as well. And um, 
I, I tend to think that like there are some real self defense. I mean, I, I've known jujitsu schools where guys and and ladies will wear street clothes uh, one day a week as they roll, right? For real combative application. Like, how does this actually work when I'm grabbing someone's you know X or Y, like a T-shirt? Like, you're not gonna do a bow and arrow choke with this very easily. It's it's too loose, right? You need a thick lapel. You could pull across someone's throat to get it. So stuff like that. Um, you know, do those other gyms like that guy who got famous on TikTok, the like the sort of like chubby fifty-year-old guy who claims to be able to take weapons out of everyone's hands and shit. You know, like what are you getting there? I mean, some is probably better than none, but you might get fucked up going to a place like that. Luke, should promoters be examining fighters more for possible mental illnesses? Like what? Like if they, I mean, I, I I think it's actually, it's an interesting question, but like, what are they supposed to do with it? Now, understand something. One, what is the difference between mental illness and then having a series of um, behaviors that are destructive and poor for maintaining relationships, but by themselves, certainly not illegal and may not necessarily rise to the point of mental illness, right? You don't have a verifiable condition of uh, mental disease. You just have a series of, uh, you have some bad ideas about the world that is informing judgment about behavior, but not, you know, we have this wholesale condition. So that's one problem. The other problem is even if you found it, if you found it, yes, screening for mental health conditions would always be beneficial, Um in theory, but if you found out they were, let's say, one of these guys was bipolar, you know, what would you do with that? Would I, I guess you could tell the commission that, but I have a feeling that they wouldn't use that as a way to change their posture towards licensing. And maybe you would argue that they shouldn't, but I'm just saying I don't think it would have a real big impact. So, like, you have to understand something. Like, dude, if you want a fist fight for a living. Um, you're going to have, in general, not always, but you're probably going to have a, a toolbox of risk assessment that is going to be um, poor, probably. And on top of that, you might have a mental makeup where having some poor ideas about how the world does or should work... Um, that might be a benefit to you, actually. So then there's a question of like, okay, this person may not have the world's healthiest outlook, but they have a very good outlook outlook for their known occupation. So what's the problem? Um, you know, you're talking about like trying to find a way to identify and then root out dysfunctional behavior before it can really take root. I think it's a fine sentiment. But how it actually gets identified and employed is a little trickier. Uh, I'll answer this one, then I'll get to the paid questions. Make sure this guy's all right. Seems, seems so. Thoughts on people getting away from things that make them unhappy, like a gym or certain individuals. Yes, you should be trying to get out of your comfort zone. But staying around things that make you unhappy or don't care or appreciate you seems like a waste of time. So what's the dividing line between a very difficult experience where you could be actually gaining something even though it's quite difficult? And at the moment in which you're experiencing difficulty, it can be hard to see exactly what the finish line might be. Versus a situation that feels very similar but is actually a waste of time. How do you differentiate the two? Well, I will warn you, everyone. It is actually quite difficult uh, in many cases to 
to know the difference. Sometimes they can be stark. I'll give you an example. If you want to be a police officer, you'd have to go to the police academy. There, You might be six weeks into that and you might be saying to yourself, man, fuck this. This is difficult. This is hard. I don't like this. I don't want to finish this. You know, you're having some real second guessing, but you can see that there's an end goal and you can work through it. And here you have now passed the police academy and you're eligible for employment and everything else that comes along with that. You, that that's a very easy way to differentiate some sort of situation where... Um, you know, things are just difficult, but there's no known path to anything. So one would be like looking at where are you headed with all this? Or is it a difficult situation that is that you know is going to last forever? How long is it going to last? What what do we know that it, or what can we reasonably ascertain it leads to? That's, I think, some things you could ask yourself. But the biggest thing I can tell you quite candidly is this is why you need to go and uh, not just read a lot about the world. You need to go see it as well. You need to know how you fit into the world in order for you to make sense of your surroundings. What do I mean? If you meet a lot of different people and you eat a lot of different food and you see a lot of different places you might find it a little bit easier to figure out what exactly works for you. A lot of people, by the time they get 18 to 22, they don't want to do what they're, they don't know what they want to do with their lives. And that has a lot of complicated roots behind it because, you know, the, many people have not had the chance to see a lot of different places and people and, and learn a lot of different things about the world and their place in it by the age of 18 or 22. So they simply don't have enough information to make a decision about what they want to do. But I will tell you that the more you do that, the more you put yourself out there, the more you'll realize, right, I'm good for this. I am not good for this. I'm willing to do this. I am not willing to do that. I like this. I do not like that. Whatever it ends up being. And as you begin to get your place in the world and you understand what works for you and what matters, will you always get it right between a situation that seems difficult but could actually be quite rewarding versus one that is seemingly difficult but perhaps a path to nowhere? Sometimes differentiating those will be difficult. But the more you understand who you are and what makes you work and how you can identify uh, hucksters from the genuine article, how you can discern... Um, you know what, 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 what catalysts are there that really prompt you into action and healthy action and whatnot? You have to go and just live life a little bit. Actually, you have to just go and see. Um, so you know, the best I can tell you is listen to yourself and your instincts and whatnot. But really, you're not going to know your place in the world until you put your place in the world. And then you'll be like, oh, right, this is who I am. You are someone, and the world will reveal this to you. But um, I think true self-identification comes through putting yourself through all of these different experiences and processes and moments and then realizing where in them you best fit. Um, knowledge of self without external stimuli to help you understand that I don't know how you get that. Um, that's hard to do. All right. So let's look at some of your paid questions. And I'm sorry about the uh, changeover. The, the intermission. Oops. Wrong one. Let's go back. Let's go to this. Here we go. Um, hang on, hang on. I gotta find this shit. Ah, here we go. Okay. Let's go down. 
How did you become a fan of Real Madrid, and what did what do you love about football? Hard to get into it when the players are so soft, crying about everything. When you first start watching soccer, it really is quite annoying. You're like, Jesus Christ, this is a little bit hard. I played a little bit as a kid, but you know, not not much. Um, the more you watch high level soccer. It's not like you love the flopping, but you can't learn to just... It doesn't affect me the way that... It used to really bother me, and now I'm like, ah, whatever. What I can just try to explain to you is, you have to understand something about this game. It, it's a worldwide game. It has worldwide participatory rates. Like, every country in the world plays it in huge numbers, right? Or virtually every place. The amount of people trying to be good at it is extraordinary. Meaning the ones at the very top have to be exponentially good. And, dude, you get to watch them... It's like watching Cirque du Soleil sometimes, dude. It's incredible what they're capable of. And, you know, I love Madrid. I love Spain. Spain's my favorite country in the world to visit. I, I think very highly of uh, all the many different parts of Spain, even the ones that don't consider themselves parts of Spain. Spain's an amazing, amazing place. Madrid, perhaps chief among them uh, for me. And so I just fell in love with the city. I fell in love with their identity. Um on a trip years and years ago. And, uh, yeah, I know people hate him, but that's why I love him. Any plans to do Luke Thomas's pissed? No. All right. Quick fire preferences, Chewbacca or Robin? Robin as in like Batman and Robin, like Chewbacca face the pain or Brian's introductions. Jesus. When he does that Pepe Le Pew thing, it's so fucking bad. I'll still say his introductions. Anti-vax versus January Sixers. <laughs> I'll take January Sixers. There's fewer of them. Uh, Seagal versus Van Dam. Van Dam. Free will versus determinism. Determinism, unfortunately. Hey, Luke, how are you and BC celebrating January 6th? Um, probably by not trying to disrupt my government, but we'll see. With the recent boxing MMA crossover, how long, if ever, do you think it will take to see a legit male world champion boxer win a UFC title or vice versa? It might happen in my lifetime, but probably not. Could we imagine a scenario where somebody has a wrestling background like Bud Crawford, young enough, gets a title, even, let's say, in a case where it's like, Oh, you're the WBA super regular continental champion, like some fucking bullshit title. Could they do that and then sign a UFC deal and, you know, do really well? Seems possible. Seems possible. Unlikely, of course, but seems possible. In order to mitigate in order to mitigate weight cutting, if USADA weighed when they come to test for PEDs you to get a sense of what you walk around at. Could that work? They already do that in California. Uh, happy holidays, Luke. Do you have a favorite holiday memory? Favorite holiday memory. I mean, I've had a lot of good ones. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite. I mean, I have a lot of great holidays. Please don't misunderstand me, but like a favorite holiday moment. No, nothing quite like that, I don't think. 
What bands do you like other than metal and Latin? Some of this person writes, I love Cannibal Corpse and Gojira, which is a French, like, it's a, it's a French death metal band that's, like, into um, the environment. But I also love Afrobeat and bands like Elbow and My Morning Jacket. All right, let me tell you who's on my workout playlist. How about that? This would not be, like, all the bands I like, but it would be some. Uh, here we go. Here is my, uh, playlist. All right. Who do I have in there? I have Corpse Grinder. Y'all heard his new song, Acid Vat. Amazing. Relax and Take Notes by 8Ball and MJG. I have, um, The Majestic from Reef the Lost Cause, Headless Ritual, Army of the Pharaohs, Raised in the Projects, Project Pat, Triple Up, Cameron. Internationally known, Big Al and Fat Joe, Onion Head, Sean Price, Monkey Bar, Sean Price, Hakeem from Vinny Paz, then I have Jedi Mitrix, I Am the Wooden Door, The Chariot, Six Feet Under, Human Target, Bloodbath, I've Eaten, um, Paul Wong, Millionaire, Love in My Life, Seven L and Esoteric, I have Verbal Assault, Chain Reaction, Public Execution, Russian Roulette featuring Chief Keef and Fat Trell, I have Self Titles Represent, I have uh, Styles of Beyond, more Army of the Pharaohs. Uh, I've got Decapitated, Spheres of Madness, Jedi Mind Tricks, No Jesus, No Beast. What else do I have? Um, Bone Thugs, East 1999. Snow Goons, Box Cutter, Samurai. You get the idea. R.A. the Rugged Man, L.I.'s uh, Finest. Why could Connor possibly want to gain weight? Uh, I said this before because one of the few, th dude. If you let me say something about what lifting weights for some of you fucks who may not know this, I'm not saying this person didn't know this. I'm just saying for some of y'all, dude, lifting weights is the sh is the shit. Now you need a like anything, a right way and a wrong way to do it, and some people are gonna get be better at it, and most people who do it are gonna be better at it than me. And you know, I only do it f like just for personal benefit, folks. Lifting weights, when you begin to get stronger, not only can you just do more things, like you'd be surprised at what you can do, and you will also realize, like, wow, I didn't realize all the ways in which I was compensating for all of my weakness through these weird, bad motions I was doing and sitting positions and everything else. But you become more of who you are. I, I really believe that. I, I, you just you get a sense of purpose, pride in your appearance, in your ability, whatever, in the growth, however you want to value the, the the journey. And to me, that's like empowering. It's it, it's it's rational. It's uh, doable for everybody. Scalable, lifelong. There's just I, I I could I couldn't understand why people would never at least on some level want resistance training. It's just so good for you. Um, so why would he want to gain weight? Well, gaining weight I don't know, but getting swole and getting weight, gaining weight in the process, I completely understand that. What is your thoughts on the idea that everything happens for a reason? A person writes, "I'm a 30 year old widow." Well, I don't want to. Um, Make light of your experience if that has been a calling card for how you have lived your life. I find it vacuous and unhelpful. I don't like it. I had a, I, I dated someone once years and years ago, and they used to say things like this, like, everything happens for a reason, and they would often say things like, no regrets. And yeah, of course, like you don't want to live in a world of shame and regret that 
occupies your mind to the point where you're not even living in a healthy situation anymore. Yes, that is quite bad. But if you've done fucked up things, maybe you should have some regret. You know, everyone makes mistakes. Maybe there should be a couple of decisions you look back on and go, I should have done that better. And then, you know, along the lines of everything happens for a reason, I don't even know what that's supposed to mean. I mean, I sort of get it, right? That like, there's a purpose to all of this and you may not see it now, but it fits into a larger thing. And, and those are circumstances out of your control and it's best to just make do with this and, and, and figure it out. And I, I understand the resiliency and the, you know, I think it's a level-headed approach to a lot of life's challenges. You can only control what you can control and 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 whatnot. But it's it's almost tautological. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, no shit. Like people don't spontaneously combust Einstein. Like, what what are we supposed to learn from that? Moreover, it's also like while I understand it as a calming way to wrap your head around the difficulties and complexities of life's challenges. You should not take it too seriously because there's another way to look at it, which is like everything happens for a reason. Well, there may have been a series of things that I could have done to avoid a bad situation or I could have intervened, but you know what? I didn't and maybe everything happens for a reason. If you want it to be, it can be a way to overlook your own failures, someone else's failures, a failure in the system that may not be anyone you know, but you don't have an incentive to identify because maybe you like certain people or you like certain causes or ideas or whatever. And so you say, well, there's just a series of other factors here that really explain it. And, you know, I can't really understand it, but this is how life works. No, you can understand it. You're just choosing not to. With all of these things, like, and I, I don't know what happened in the case of losing a spouse, which has to be the worst thing on earth. Uh, or, you know, losing a kid might be worse, but it's up there. And so I, I, I tell you sincerely, I'm terribly sorry to hear about your situation. And if understanding that there's just a violent complex world out there that takes loved ones from us without us ever really having a chance to stop it or to understand it or to live in those spaces i i under i get that completely but be very very careful about using not saying you the person who asked the question but the proverbial you who are watching be very very careful about people who rely on statements like these as as camouflage either to conceal their own failures or failures around them from you or even from themselves. I see a lot of that shit in No Regrets and uh, Everything Happens for a Reason. It's like, mm, yeah, but like, that's true, but that didn't have to happen here. Who got the better of sparring, Woodley or Colby? Uh, I am told Colby. I am told Colby. Uh, Luke, thank you for the MK. Thank you for your and MK content. Best MMA programming is right. Who do you think is Rose's biggest challenge in 2021? I don't know. Um, who is Rose's biggest challenge in 2021? I get maybe. We'll see what Rodriguez does. Interesting one. Dern, if she can get the fight to the floor, is a problem for anybody. We'll see. All right, almost done here. We'll call it a day. Oh, I think that's it. That's it. Okay. Well, uh, is there anything else on this that I wanted to get to? Let's see. Any other question, considering we have a little bit more time?
Let's see. It's a question about Saddam Hussein. I'll have to table that one, although it's a good one. Let's do one more. Okay, assuming Jones gets an immediate heavyweight title shot. That's a big one. Which one of Francis or Gon presents the more difficult matchup? It's a little bit hard to know because we don't know exactly what John Jones we're going to get. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm not telling you he's going to lose going to heavyweight. I don't know what he's going to do. But I'm very skeptical that we can... Like the idea that he's automatically going to take over. I'm just very skeptical of that. I have been around MMA too long and seen how the passage of time really it, it, it will shockingly erode someone's skill set. If you haven't seen someone for like two, three, sometimes four years, and then you see them fight, you're like, dude, the rest of the fight game looks better than it did the last time this fucker was around. Now, John is a very special case, as we all know, um, in terms of what he's been able to achieve. But I need to see how he looks at heavyweight. I will tell you, I think Gon is the problem for everybody. I think Gon's ability to manage distance, I think his ability to select the right strikes at the right time, I think um, I just think he's a problem, dude. He's a really, really, really big problem. He is light on his feet, athletic. Powerful knockout power, although heavyweights do, but you know, he's got it too. And then is a phenomenal manager and establisher of range, has phenomenal shot selection, uses feints and fakes and rhythm change and blitzing. He's a problem. I don't, I don't know. I don't think, I definitely don't think Jones beats him. And I, you know, I, I know Anthony Smith said it recently. I think Anthony Smith is right on the money, right on the money. Okay. I think that is it for us today. Um, that's it for us in 2020. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? Um, this is why I need my own private space, though, as you guys have seen. My daughter came in. The guy working on construction came in. I'm sorry about that. Um, I need to get out of here. Not right the second, but I mean, I need to extricate myself and get a private space for this channel to get where it needs to go. I hope you guys understand that. So first quarter of 2022, I can't guarantee I'll be in a new space, but I'm Pretty confident I will be. Pretty Fingers crossed. We'll see. Um, thank you guys so much for the year. I'm sorry that the year featured not the best of this channel. Not even close. But I think 2022 is going to be a lot better. I have a really good feeling about 2022 in terms of getting us to a place where this channel can like be a growing force again. Um, but I'm happy with what we have right now. I intend to build on it. I thank all of you for your patronage. I think everyone watching, I think everyone who has subscribed, everyone who's going to listen to this on podcast, thank you for sticking with me in 2021 and take care of yourself uh, tomorrow and Saturday. Please don't drink and drive. Call an Uber, call a Lyft, walk home, whatever you got to do. Give the keys to somebody else. It's not worth it. Don't go to fucking jail to start your new year, please, for the love of God. And don't hurt yourself and don't hurt somebody else. Drink indoors, take it easy, and start 2022 fresh, aggressively, and ready to go. Because I know I'm going to be. Okay? Love you guys. Thank you so much. Enjoy your holidays. As I said, 
Be good to yourselves. Be good to each other. And I will see you in about a week. Until then.